That was as good as the first time. Yeah, we pull out all the stops for the big Memorial Day crowd. <laughs> you know, warehouse and holidays, just, just, yeah. It's good to have you all here. As Dave said, we're going to look at the last week of the series, I Object, without so much looking at an objection, but what's with all the objections? And it's really a relatively intuitive argument. At some level, it has some strong common sense, really. If you can just keep pulling out arguments, at some point, don't you decide just sheer number of arguments makes you question whether there's any truth to it. It's, it's sort of like, I'm going to use this, it's, it's, actually, it's, it's actually a philosophical argument, the leaky bucket. I know it doesn't sound like one. I'm going to use that twice today in different ways. But it's sort of like this, you've got a bucket and, and it, 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 you keep getting holes in it. And, and you patch them for a while, right? But after a while, there's just so many holes in the bucket that what do you do? You stop fixing the bucket, you throw it out and get another bucket. That's really the common sense approach. This, this, the sheer number of arguments makes you go, I'm not, even if all of them are not right, it, it, can anything true need this much defending after all? And of course, we've only done six arguments. I could have done a lot more. There's actually some very serious, some, some really heavy uh, heavyweight arguments against Christianity. I think the most powerful one, which we didn't even deal with in this series, is the existence of evil, or put more poignantly, the existence of suffering. How do you reconcile a good God with the amount of suffering that's in the world? And, and in uh, uh, Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, is this really um, fascinating section. You'll have to trust me. It's a fascinating section on... Uh, on the nature of evil. And, and this is how it goes. There's two brothers. And um, one of the brothers is a believer and the other is not. And, and the one who is not a believer says, I, I just don't know how you can reconcile the world with, with suffering. And the one who's a believer says, well, it, it was necessary. It's not that God wanted evil or suffering in the world, but given the nature of humanity and, 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 and their waywardness, it, it was necessary in order for redemption to happen and bring people back to himself. And so in the end, you know, some people will be brought to glory and happiness and bliss, and it's not good, but it was sort of necessary. And the brother says, okay, let me, let me get this straight. So what you're saying is evil suffering of people happened, but in the end, some people will experience happiness and bliss, and that's just part of how it had to happen. Yes. So his brother goes, okay, if you're one of the people who are going to experience happiness and bliss, right? Yes. Now, if I were to tell you that in order for you to experience eternal happiness and bliss, only one child, I'll not mention the adults, just the children, and I'll men not mention all the children, just one child, if only one child would have to suffer if one child would suffer and be tortured in order for you to experience eternal happiness and bliss, would you do it? Would you sign that deal? Would you say, yes, I'm willing for that child to suffer so that I can be happy in the end? Is that okay? Will you accept that? And the brother who is the believer is stopped short completely and says quietly, no, I wouldn't. And he said, so then... Why is your God willing to allow not one child, but millions of children throughout history to suffer so that you could be happy? It's a strong argument. 
Now, the argument is far more nuanced, and there's much more to it, and having waded through that argument, I would be loved if any of you like to wade through the argument of evil and suffering. Happy to do it. All sorts of different aspects to it. In the end, as I've explored that, I go, no, no, I think it's actually the existence of evil and suffering points me toward a good God for different reasons than the guy in the Brothers Kremazov puts forward. But it's just another argument, and at some point, you don't you go, they just... I'm tired of defending them all. Maybe we just need to toss the whole thing out and start over. Another scintillating book, really, and I'm hoping that someday somebody here other than me will read this, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. I know, it sounds great. It's a page-turner. But it, what he does in that is he walks through how science has worked in terms of different paradigms. And, you know, at different times, there's a scientific paradigm that structures all research. You, you know, and at, at one point, there was theories of steady-state equilibrium as opposed to the Big Bang, which gave you know, way later. But steady-state equilibrium is sort of the theory of the universe. And uh, during that time, when that was the accepted theory, all research went along the premise that that was true. And, and then anomalies would pop up. And as the anomalies would pop up, they'd sort of ignore them and keep going on with research because it still worked. And, and what Thomas Kuhn says, and he, he's quite accurate, is that through the history of science, what happens was when the anomalies get so great and there's just too many, that what science does is it scraps the model, because they know it's just a model, at least most scientists do, and put up a new model for how to explain the world. And then once again, they do research until the anomalies get too great for that one. And so essentially this argument is, isn't this what we have in Christianity? It was a nice model of the world, but the arguments, as you, they weigh in, there's been so many anomalies that in the end, don't we just need to start over and scrap it? Well, let's think about that in two different ways. One is this. That argument, I'm going to deal with this quickly and move on, but that argument is essentially what's called a comprehensive case argument, which is none of the arguments in themselves may win the day, but there's so many that lead you to believe that the position of attack is correct. Just the sheer number of arguments would lead you to believe that the position is correct. That's often an argument, quite honestly, that's been used by believers. Uh, theists, in order to prove the existence of God. I, I was at a, a debate once. I actually brought the guy in, and so I was chagrined later. But it, where a very, very high-level pro- professor um, who was a theist, he got up to do this debate with an agnostic, and what he said was, I'm going to level at you 22 arguments for the existence of God. None of them will absolutely convince you, but there's so many, I don't believe you can handle them all. That's the comprehensive case argument. I, you know, I'm going to just give you a lot of arguments. You know, the idea that a lot of arguments be leveled against something would make that case true is a pretty fallacious argument. And there was actually an atheist named Anthony Flew, he's now a theist, who, who referred that this way. Look, if one leaky bucket doesn't hold water, ten leaky buckets don't hold water. Sheer number of arguments, none of which are convincing in themselves, does not prove a case. It just gives you more faulty arguments. And so I think this whole question, well, isn't there just so many arguments in the end? Don't we need to dismiss it? Unfortunately or fortunately, I think you have to take the arguments one at a time and then ask a different question, which is this. Why is Christianity the subject of so much attack and defense? Why are arguments so routinely leveled at its consistency or its truth? Why is there so much on both sides being fought about? Why is it such a pitch battle? 
I'd venture to say to you that that, that's not normally the case in most moral philosophies, for example. I have never heard of a pitched battle over Confucianism. I've never heard people fighting tooth and nail for whether or not it's real or not. People more or less would take, you know, parts of Confucianism and they'll take a little bit of that and a little bit of that and they're not fighting over it. There's no pitched battle. There's no pitched battle over Greek philosophy. There's no pitched battle over Shakespeare. We look at these things and we go, they're good. They're fine. But we're not battling them. We're not leveling and defending arguments for it. Why is Christianity the subject of such intense fighting? Argument, counter-argument, defense, attack. Something is attacked for two reasons. One, potentially because it's weak. But normally, because it's strong and it's substantial. Pitched battles take place over things that matter. They don't over things that don't. We don't fight over minuscule things. People don't write texts attacking things that are of marginal importance. Pitched battles take place over matters of great import. For right or wrong, true or false, the reason why there are so many arguments about Christianity is because Christianity claims to stand in the middle of a matter of ultimate importance. And so, quite honestly, the middle ground gets wiped out. C.S. Lewis, in a very famous argument called The Trilemma, essentially said, with Jesus, you either got to say he's God or he's not. And he makes this argument. He says, don't give me, you can either call him Lord and bow down before him, or you can call him a lunatic and, and dismiss him. But don't give me any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a good moral, uh, moral teacher. He did not leave that option open to us. He did not intend to. And what Lewis says in that argument is, look, Jesus, Jesus stands as this person who commends himself to us as the Savior of the world, as the God of the universe. And by the way, as an aside, if you saw the Colbert thing we did a couple of weeks ago with Bart Ehrman's, one of the comments, we didn't deal with any of the, the substance, the actual arguments that, but one of the comments that Bart Ehrman's makes sort of off the top is that Jesus claims to be God and John. He doesn't, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's making case that they interpret them all differently. I encourage you to go back and read through the other Gospels. Jesus makes stunning claims, <laughs> stunning claims in all three Gospels. In, in the Gospel of, of, of Matthew, he, he makes these ultimate claims about him, himself where he says, at one point he says, I'm the only one who knows the Father in heaven. If you want to know him, I will reveal him to you. For no one has ever known him but me, and who I choose to reveal him to. I mean, absolutely ultimate claim. And he makes those sort of claims over and over again. And so Jesus carves out this swath where he says, I'm, I'm telling you, eternal destiny hangs in the balance with me, with what you do with me. In or out, do you believe it or not? He leaves no middle ground for indifference. And so, because he raises such an ultimate issue, what happens is the fighting is fierce on both sides because the stakes are very high. 
for Jesus to say, look, i got a few things to say to you. Take it or leave it. Some of it I think will be helpful. Some of it may not be. It all depends on your personality. You know, choose what you like. Little of this, little of that. If he did that, nobody's fighting. They're fighting because he says, I came to redeem the world. You believe it or not, there's no middle ground. There's no place for indifference. That's an option he didn't leave open to us. He didn't intend to. Pitch battles take place over matters of the greatest importance. So what I'd like to do today is look with you at one, really just one verse in the book of Romans. Romans is a book written to the church in Rome in the 60s AD, uh, in the generation um, after Jesus died. And, and a guy named Paul is writing to them, and he's made this, this very strong case Sort of, sort of laying out what the heart of Christianity is. And then he makes a call to action. And he does so with this simple verse. And this is all we're going to walk through today is this verse. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, or in some places translated, this is your acceptable act of worship. He says, Given the fact of what Jesus claims, and of what he's calling you to, and what he has done, then, therefore, I urge you, I don't ask you, I don't make a mild request, I urge you, speaking to those who believe, I urge you, in view of what he has done, which I'll walk through in just a minute, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, if you know anything about sacrifices, sacrifices get consumed. Sacrifices were either burnt, those were called burnt offerings, Shocking, huh? They were burnt completely, and, and, or a sacrifice was partially burnt and partially eaten as a, as a ceremony, as a, as a festival. Um, but they were gone. If you sacrificed some, you didn't get anything back. It was a complete offering. Didn't come back. So what Paul apparently is saying here is based upon what Jesus has done, his, his, um, his urging to people who believe that is, it's worth all of your life. It's worth your body, your heart, your soul, your mind. What he has done commends itself to us in such a way that it calls for us to be all in. What is it that calls for us to be all in? God's mercies. He says, because of God's mercies, I urge you to throw everything in. Because this is the mercy of God. In five days, we will open the gallery show that um, Dave referred to and I've been talking to you about the last few weeks. AIDS at Work, Stories of Beauty and Affliction. And I think Dave told you, I missed the beginning part of his intro, that I, I, I walked him in there just for a moment to see. It. It's, in, it's in partial form right now. We have it locked until, until later this week. It's in partial form. And I walked him through just for his announcement so he could see what it looked like. And it had the effect that I thought it would. It was stunning. There, there are a couple of pieces in there that I don't, I don't want to describe really at all, but they will simply catch you off guard. And they are stories of beauty and affliction. I, I have told you this concept before. It's so critically important. I want to walk through this again. Beauty and affliction are what draws people to believe there is something more to life 
than what they see, something more than the mundane. And beauty is that which haunts us. We see it, and it just draws us in, and it's hard to describe well. And I, I'm not, for those of you who know me, you'll probably figure this out, I'm not one of those people who would like, you know, lay back on my back and look at clouds and see things in them, and, oh, did you see the duck, and stuff like that. However, th- there are times where I'm, I'm, I'm looking up, and I'm, I'm not really looking for cloud formation, but you'll see something happen, like with a, the clouds and the way they cut away and, the, and the, the blue sky above it. And there's a moment. There's a moment that's haunting. There's a moment where something strikes deeper. I don't see a ducky. <laughs> I feel something move within me. And, and I would say within my soul. And then it's gone. Do you know what I mean? Do you know those moments where something just... It sort of captures you. You're, you're, in a, you're in an event or you, you see a scene or you're in a conversation or an idea hits you and suddenly you feel like your whole person is elevated to something else and you're almost grasping for what it is and you're going, this, there's, it's, there's something and then it's gone. But it leaves its mark. And it makes you say, there's something else here than the mundane of life. That is beauty. That which draws the heart. Affliction is quite the opposite. It draws the heart for an entirely different reason. Beauty or affliction, beauty or brokenness. Brokenness or affliction is that place when we see something and it haunts. But it haunts not because we, oh, I wish I had more of that, because something about it so strikes us as so wrong that it ought not exist. It seems not to fit in our world. It ought not be. It is why that argument in the Brothers Karamazov is so powerful because what the one brother, I think it's Alyosha, lays before his other brother is one child being tortured. And in his brother's mind, now he's visioning that. He's thinking of that. He's thinking of one child suffering. He's thinking of a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. He can see his face in his mind who's suffering. And everything in his heart shrieks out, this ought not be. It can't be. This is wrong. And in the same way, It elevates us above the random. This is the structure in which Christianity operates from the beginning of this story, which we call the true story of God's redemptive purpose in the world. From the beginning of this story, what we see is staggering beauty and heartbreaking brokenness. And it's because Humanity, you and I were made for beauty. We were made for glory. We were made for perfection, quite honestly. And at moments we sense that haunting or something more, but we also see how badly it's gone. And that sort of staggers the mind. How do these two things fit together? They, they don't seem random, nor do they seem perfect. There's just something about those two opposed concepts that for thinking people wrestles hard at the soul level. In that space of a humanity struggling with those two fundamental issues that are not simply theoretical, but hit us in our ordinary lives, in that space, 2,000 years ago, a man entered the scene. And they called him Jesus. And he walked on earth and he uttered words of unusual power. 
You know, you, you, you've heard people say if they, one of the attacks on Christianity is that, you know, we don't really know what Jesus said. How, come, how do we know somebody didn't write it later? Well, uh, the variety of reasons, we're pretty sure that is not the case. We're way back right to the time of Jesus when we have the words delivered. But here's the thing I wonder about that. Okay, let's say Jesus didn't say them. Then I want to know who did. Because if it wasn't him, somebody still penned words of staggering importance. The first time I read the Gospels, I was an atheist. I was not trying to get back to my roots. I took a Bible from a doctor's office, and it was not, I wasn't stealing it. You have, you're just going to have to trust me. I wasn't. And I read it. And there was no religious thought in my mind of, oh, I should believe something. And as I read the words, I mean, I just kept getting overwhelmed with the person of Jesus, with who he was. If somebody manufactured them, I want to know where they came up with it. Because the resonance at the heart is so strong. And Jesus comes straight into the middle of those concepts of beauty and brokenness. And he elevates them both. At times, you, you see him lift people's heads and speak into their eyes and say, you were made for more, and they believe it. And at other times, he speaks to people, and you can see them bow their heads because they, too, know they were made for more. His, his words cut to the heart of these two concepts, but he doesn't simply leave us there. He doesn't leave us with the wistful longing and the, and the bitter brokenness. He speaks into the midst of that, and he lives into the midst of that, and he sacrifices into the midst of that, and he brings mercy. The story of Jesus is not simply a brilliant teacher. It's not simply someone who healed. It's the story of someone who stood in the gap for people like you and I. And he predicts throughout his life that he is actually going to end rather tragically, apparently, by dying. But his death was a death he took for you and I. Seeing the gap between who we are and who we could be, he alone, being the God of the universe, sought to brought those together by perishing to pay for everything we've done to cut us off from God and to bring us back to where we belong, into a relationship with him. And that is only mercy. As, as I said last week, there, there's not enough you could do or I could do to possibly earn my way back into a relationship with God. What would I offer? What would I bring? If this is true, that the universe is structured around a God of beauty and power and holiness, what would I possibly bring to make my life, by my strength, right with Him? Well, in my best moments, I know nothing. And Jesus said, you don't have to. You can't make your life right with God, and you do not have to. What you need is mercy. I will give you mercy. I will offer forgiveness that's full and complete, and I will give you a relationship with the God for whom you were made again. And you will know beauty. And brokenness will begin, begin to be mended. And then Jesus dies, rises, and people believe. And the space and the exact town and the exact time where he died 
people go out from there proclaiming that he is risen, and they're willing to die for that faith. Because now they have seen a mercy that changed their life that they are willing to battle for, that they're willing to offer to anyone. With this central message, Jesus says, I bring you redemption. I bring you eternity. I bring you what your heart needs and was made for. And so, if you believe in this redemptive work that was done for you, you will have life and life eternal. If you do not, and he's blunt, if you do not, you will not know a relationship with God because I came to bring you back. And so Paul says, therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercies, in view of what he's done, heart, soul, mind, body. Not performance, not duty, not church attendance, not giving, heart, soul, mind, and body. Connect your life with God. It's a matter of eternal significance. And so, that matter of such importance becomes the focus of so much argumentation because it makes astounding claims. And you and I do not like to hear a message, quite honestly, that says we can't do it on our own. We deeply want to believe we can do it on our own. We do not want to believe that we, this sense we feel of injustice in the world, partly comes out of our own soul, that we bring the brokenness into the world. And so, quite naturally, we push against that. And it's such a matter of such ultimate significance that it's easy to find places to attack. And it should not surprise us that it's the case. Pitch battles take place over matters of importance. And so I would have you leave today not so concerned about the sheer number, but rather wade into those arguments. I would offer you two challenges. The one thing I would say prior to those challenges is this middle ground here of apathy or indifference, the middle ground that C.S. Lewis called nonsense, let's get rid of that one. Jesus didn't leave that option open. He didn't intend to. I would commend to you two challenges. One, if you're someone who is exploring the Christian faith and you wonder, you do, you sit out there and you wonder, you're thinking, okay, you've said six, now seven objections. I got more. I've got other things. Wait in. Wait in full bore. It's important enough. Wait in. There are places to explore it. There are ways to discuss it. Something about your soul is wondering and wants to know. Don't dismiss it. Don't cover it up. Take this opportunity to move into it. I've encouraged you to pick up the book by Tim Keller, Reason for God. If this is the space that you're in right now, please pick it up. You can go back there, see things, and, and order it. If, if, if you have trouble buying it, let me know. If you want to discuss this more with any of us, let us know. If things are stirring and you have questions, wait in. It's worth it. The matter is of great importance. If you have come to a place 
of faith in Christ, this is what I would have you consider. Let's you and I live our lives as if they matter. Let's, in view of God's mercy, because that's true, let's not live halfway. Let's wade in with who we are. There's no fear and there's no risk. Redemption's been won. Your heart is back to God. Your soul is alive. There's nothing to fear. Live full out. I urge you, like Paul does, in view of God's mercies, to give your body, your mind, your soul, your heart to a God who rescued you, to a God who loves you, to a God who is raising beauty within your soul. Let's pray. God, some of our questions come out of the beauty of how we're created. We are created intricately by you to wonder, to think, to reason, to reflect. And we do wonder. Questions raise. Why? How? But that's part of the beauty of how you made us. Help us to revel in the fact that we do not take things at face value. Teach us not to fear the questions, but to wait in heart and soul. I pray particularly for those who wrestle with issues, wondering whether or not Christianity is true because of its importance, because it speaks to them knowing you or not. I pray that you'd give them the will and the heart to wait in, to either wait in fully and receive it or to wait in fully and if they must, dismiss it. I pray for those of us who are followers of yours, those in whom there are always questions and those whom wrestle and desire and hope and believe in different measures at different times. Would you continue to wake our souls to make us more alive, to revive that which is waning, to fan that which is surging, to make us the people who live fully. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In my opinion, the band is just really good today. <laughs> and this set, I think, will lay before you. I mean, throughout the centuries, music has been used as a way for the soul to and the mind both to engage. It has both words and it has music. And there, there's something about it and how we're designed that, that can be very powerful for us. And I think you will see in, in this set an opportunity to experience beauty, an opportunity to reflect on, on brokenness, but in the midst of that, an opportunity to see the mercy of God. And, and my prayer is that you will be impacted by that. And you will be able to respond and to weigh in. We begin this time of worship the way we always do. We frame it with an offering, because the offering reminds us in a tangible way what we believe, which is that God comes first into our lives, and he initiates, and out of that, we're able to live our lives powerfully with freedom and with peace.